Today on Rebuilders, we are continuing to explore discipleship. What are we focusing on in particular, Mark? We're going to be looking at, or we've looked at that civilizational spaces is where the world is moving. And civilizational spaces are more contested spaces. It's where cultures clash with each other at a national geopolitical level, but also at an individual level. But we're trying to lead in the midst of this. We're trying to lead people towards Jesus. We're running preaching series. We're running discipleship programs. How do you do all this when crisis just seems to be a continual? But what if in the midst of that, there's an incredible opportunity? What if God is building a whole new cohort of leaders who is taking deeper because crisis precedes renewal and multiplying crisis offer the chance of accelerated renewal and deepening spiritual growth? All that and more. What an exciting invitation. If you want to know more, a little bit of a behind the scenes chat about what's happening in the episode, you can join our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both going? We are, and I'm going to speak on both of us. Good. Going to speak on both of us, eh? <laughs> yes, I'm going to speak on. Sorry, on behalf of both, both of us. us. Yeah, I'm going to defer to Mark's comments. Okay, yes, great. Yes. Um, on my state mm, of being. Would you like me mm. to ask any questions I have of you through Mark? Sure. Okay. Mm. Yeah. He's good. <laughs> Tell Liddy I got my hair cut. <laughs> Daniel got his hair cut. I know, we talked about this in the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) It's old news. Uh, Well, if you did join us for our last episode. Can I just interrupt? Oh, yeah, yes. Um, For subscribers, um, you can purchase some of Daniel's hair. (laughs) (laughs) We've got them in tiny Ziploc bags. Yeah, tiny Ziploc bags beginning at um, one Bitcoin (laughs) per bag. (laughs) I want, could we? (laughs) Actually, when I did get my hair cut, they literally had to have a... Like one of the apprentices like sweeping up as soon as they were cutting it because there was so much, so much hair. I thought you were going to say they had to have a security guard <laughs> at the front of the, you know, the, the barbers to stop, you know, rebuilders, sound desk fans. They did joke about having like a black market wig maker out the back that they were wow. passing my hair to. But. I was on, I don't know if I've mentioned this, I was on uh, Read the Room, the Australian Ministry podcast. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, based in Adelaide, South Australia, and I was told that. Did you um, ask? Did you ask them if they knew Daniel? <laughs> no, no, they they went there. They were like, uh, we're on Team Daniel, and uh, because he's a South Australian, and um, yeah. my people represent. Yeah, so Pretty. send that hair. Stay strong. Yeah, I'm ready to hear from all my pals in Country Victoria. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sheep friends. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to dive into the episode now. Yeah, how do we transition from <laughs> that? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be smooth. No. No. Uh, last week we moved from discussing what's happening in Ukraine but then looking at um, how the notion of civilizational states are also creating civilizational spaces um, and how that sort of filters down into discipleship and Mm. impacts what discipleship looks like in churches, particularly in Western culture. Mm. Uh, Something that came up after we recorded that episode 
we um, did our subscriber chats afterwards and answered a question that had come in about the previous week's episode, which yes. was about um, whether the church is could, could be considered a civilizational state. Mm. Um, but then I asked, uh, there was a term that you brought up last episode called ideologically maximalist. Yes. Which for some reason I just could not get my mouth around, but mm. I seem to have just nailed it then. Maximalist. Ideologically maximalist. There's a lot happening. Anyway, I had a question that respond where I asked whether we as Christians are ideologically maximalist. Mm. It's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that um, defines ideologically maximalist is that you are going to uncompromisingly achieve your program. Yeah. of what you see as a desired outcome or desired world. So someone who is um, as a political ideologically maximist is a maximalist is uncompromising. They're going to have scorched earth to achieve what they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem is we can't be because um, uh, we would be doing that in human power. Okay. So there's an element where God is pure and holy mm. and – by being maximalist, we're trying to be holy in our own strength and achieve our own strength. So if you think yes. about it, like in a sense, you know, Tertullian, I think we talked about, you know, there's, there's did we talk about that last week? Tertullian on the cross. Yep. Oh, yes. We did talk about it. Yeah. Yes. So Tertullian said, you know, the cross is always uh, in between, um, you know, irreligion and religion, just yes. as Jesus was crucified between two thieves. So there's always these two, temption, two temptations. And, and I think that, um, you know, to ideologically maximalist is to try and do something in that sort of spirit of religion. Mm. Um, and it's absolutely uncompromising. So, you know, ultimately at this point there, what what Jesus does on the cross is Jesus on the cross holds together love and justice. Yes. And so he brings about the desired world that he wants to see, which we don't deserve to be in because of our sin. But then also through an act of grace, he creates a space for us to be in that world that he's mm -hmm. creating. Um, and so it's actually grace, which is, I think, the, the, the key differentiation here. So to be ideologically maximalist is not to have grace. Yeah, okay. So I think only God can pull this off. This is the sovereignty of God where he can bring about the world that he wants to bring about. And only he, through um, being God, through his work on the cross, um, can actually you know, hold – Achieve what he wants to achieve, but also do that with mercy. Yes. You know, and and it's interesting, like, you know, in Isaiah, it talks about, you know, in prophesying Jesus that he'll, you know, have government upon his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, you know, the Hebrew for government, it sort of, you know, means dominion and rule comes from another root word in Hebrew, which is talking about to contend, to struggle for something, yeah. you know, to build this space of, of dominion. And I think only God can do that in the way where he achieves love and justice with grace. Mm. And that's why I think, you know, the hinge point of history is the cross. Um, so, you know, and I think that's why ideology is always something which is often, you know, like in its purest form is disconnected from the actual, you know, real world. It's not battle tested, yes. you know. So, yeah, there are a few thoughts around that. Okay. So this week, um, well, you, you've kind of led us in there, but we're, looking at how discipleship occurs in that contested space. So for a bit of a recap, do you want to run us through what we talked about last week? Yes. Um, 
Can I go back and make a point on that I previous point? I would love for you to do that, yeah. Because I think, I think you see these two trends in culture mm-hmm. where the pluralist thing, you do you thing has not gone away. Yeah. It's still there. It's still out there. It's still very prevalent. In fact, you could possibly argue that more of the public are there than they are in the sort of cultural ideologically maximalist yeah. position. Yeah. Um, that perhaps the sort of ideologically max- maximalist position is held by, you know, some people in elites and different people and so on, you know, in different institutions. Um, so there's still a world where there is, like in a sense, complete license but no holiness. Mm. Then there's this other sort of post-Christian project of a post-Christian holiness but without grace. Yeah. And so I think that's why, you know, the cross, um, you know, is always relevant. But particularly at this moment, I just think that articulation of the cross and the gospel as something which doesn't fall into those two camps mm. is, is just really important. Just mm. wanted to add that extra, yeah, extra no, that's great. element. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, discipleship occurs in a contested space. Yes. Recap last week. Okay. So um, we talked about that there are a bit of progression in culture, mm-hmm. that there are cultures which are monolithic. They have a set of values that are sort of accepted by the majority of that culture. Yep. They're operating. Um, and then you have cultures which are very multicultural where there's different cultures and values operating. Yeah. We talked about how in a pluralist space, they're able to stay pluralist because there's these sort of like solutions, these coping mechanisms that yes. they have for the differences. It could be humour, heuristics, these sort of everyday, you, I love the term you use, MacGyver you know, solutions yeah. um, where you work out ways to work it. So, you know, a bit of humour or sort of, you know, like sign language between two people who who don't speak the same language or um, it talked about how it could be a market in a place like the Middle East where mm-hmm. people can come together and trade sport, you know, where people may follow the same football team, you know, yeah. from different backgrounds or whatever. Um, but now we've seemed to have moved in a much more contested space. Even sport, you know, humour is being questioned. You know, all those sort of heuristic spaces are being re-looked really at because we've moved more into this civilizational space where everything seems contested. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we've gone this, this shift from monolithic to pluralistic. A lot of the church is still trying to work that one out. Yeah. And then just as they're trying to work out pluralistic, we then race into um, contested. And a lot of the people who put their values in the pluralistic space are struggling with the fact that we're in a contested space now. Mm-hmm. And a contested face, space almost feels like them back to monolithic. Yes. When, when, but it's actually different versions who want, you know, a monolith, you know, there's different people who want to be the dominant monolithic culture fighting yes. for space. Okay. Now, we've moved into a contested space. What I'd like to add to, which we didn't talk about last week. So we we established that everything is contested. People are ideologically maximalist. They mm-hmm. almost refuse to compromise. And that's that's happening in a cultural space. Well, you know, I just said the majority of the population, maybe they're still sort of you do you pluralistic, but definitely there's battlegrounds uh, amongst elites and people who control culture yeah. um, over space, you know, left versus right, different value systems, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got that issue going on in a contended space. Now, in the previous space, one thing that people were increasingly becoming aware of is the way that the environment shapes you and particularly the way that digital uh, environment that we're living in is filled with algorithms and mm. has an ability to capture data and understand us perhaps better than we understand ourselves. One example I've given many times over the year and other people have years of, and you know, last few years and other people have given it, you know, for example, Google knows um, when you know, it said a mother who's about to have a baby, Google will know before they've told their friends and their their own mother because yeah. you know searching for 
you know, Google searches, you know, for pregnancy test or, you know, best time to, ov- you know, ovulation, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It can work this out. So, or, you know, ordering, um, you know, diapers or nappies or whatever. So this idea that we're in this now data-rich environment mm-hmm. where we're shaped by our phones, by our digital environments in ways that we don't even know. Now, most of the conversation we had around that was that was around consumerism. Yeah. So that was this digital environment to actually make us buy things. But what's happened now is that's still there, mm. but now it's also you being used in a contested space. So, for example, in Ukraine, we can see that there's an economic war. We can see that there's a kinetic war of actual tanks and rockets mm-hmm. and, and, and rifles. Um, but there's also an informational war to control the narrative. Mm. You know, some people have called this, we've talked before about story wars. Yep. People talk about information ops at the moment. So, for example, you know, the, there were letters in the, the Ukrainian war released supposedly by um, FSB officers, which is the security services of Russia, which were questioning mm-hmm. the war. And people were putting them up there. And you saw people writing on Twitter often, if this is true, this is huge. People increasingly during this war have written, if this is true, because in this fast-paced world of, say, Twitter, in a war or TikTok in a war or Instagram in a war, you know that the information coming at you, it may be really appealing. Yes. Um, so I, I saw a picture of a of a come up and it was of a, a young sort of attractive young woman from Ukraine with a rifle and fatigues holding a kitten. Hmm. Now, that may well be true. I also studied advertising. Yeah. <laughs> and, and no, that's exactly if I was an advertising guy and I was doing information ops for the Ukrainians, an attractive young woman with a gun, with a, with a cute kitten, you know, reaches into the emotional spaces of lots of people. That's, that's a good marketing campaign. Mm. Very well may have been a young woman who just happened to rescue a kitten. So, but even me looking at that, I'm going, what's true here, what's not? Mm. So what's happening is your people in the past used to, often we thought like, here's these people who are cultural Christians, they're gonna come to your church. You can then plug them into a discipleship program. And in a sense though, if the discipleship program is proper, that could be putting them in a small group of Bible study. Maybe there's this short course they can do. Maybe it's this, you know, Bible study curriculum that you've gotten, adult Sunday school, whatever it may be, that you can put them in there and you can sort of plug them into this linear, almost production line idea. And then they come out the other end, a better disciple of Jesus. But what's happening is the people are coming to our churches who are sitting in our pews, even the people who are, you know, we would say quite formed Christians, are finding themselves now living in this continually contested space. Mm. That's also, you know, what my friend Dave Kinnaman and and Mark Matlock write in their book, um, Faith for Exiles, is in digital Babylon. Yes. So it's not only Babylon, it's all these competing stories, but it's a digital space. So it's a contested information warfare space that your disciples are living in. And what this means then, that changes cultural Christianity. Because we we presumed mm. that there's this big bulk of people out there in you know large parts of the West who were sort of good moral folk and they can come to your church and hear a few good sermons and get in a small group and, and they'll be fine, they'll grow. But now what's happening is there's this, this continual battle and alternate gospels coming at us, often in ways forming us, we don't even see. And this is the most sophisticated environment of information warfare that I think humans have ever lived in. So you, you've brought up the the examples of the ways in which uh, churches and institutions have done discipleship programs. What does this then mean? If we're mm. in this environment, what does this mean for the discipleship programs that many churches have in place and are still using? 
Well, first of all, knowing that people are listening all over the world and yeah. from you know, different denominations, mm. and, and so I don't want to narrow into one because we've got quite a broad audience of, of people, but all of them in some sense, even if it's just your Sunday services yeah. and your preaching series to other churches which have whole life tracks and so on, there's all these different ways that churches, whether they're a church of 50 people or you know 5,000 people, say, we want to move people this year closer to Jesus through doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things is that particularly linear discipleship programs in this environment run into difficulty. And particularly, I think, larger churches, which have been able to run at a higher scale Mm. because they've set up discipleship programs, it becomes a lot harder to run things at scale because you've got this information warfare happening all the time. Yeah. So, for example, you know, an issue will blow up. I think, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago we did our Ukraine issue and a lot of people listen to it. I'm I'm sure that a lot of people listen to that because they're like, oh my goodness, Ukraine's just come up. I don't know anything about this. Yeah. People in my church are asking about it. What on earth do I do? I need to address this now. Oh, good rebuilders just did a 50 minute on that. You know, hey yeah. mate, listen to this. Um, because if you're then planning like in the old way, before in a more less chaotic, less complex environment, you know, in November, we're going to have our month where we help people deal with their finances. In in January, it's, you know, singleness or marriage or how to be a good dad or, you know, learning the Bible or yeah. what does the Old Testament say? So you could plan and you can still do some of that, but it feels like we're just careening from crises to crises mm. at the moment. So what that means is before people assumed in sort of that pluralistic, you do your culture, that it was sort of neutral. Yeah, okay. It was going to be the sort of same and that out there there was sort of this neutral mass culture, cultural Christian yeah. who perhaps just need to be convinced on a few things or just plugged into the program where now what we're seeing is that these we're living in this contested environment, which is a crisis-rich environment. And then that's what actually happens. That's continually subverting that sort of linear discipleship journey because people are constantly uh, confronting crises. And what that does is it begins to throw us into crisis. Mm. Many people have written to us and said that they're finding rebuilders helpful because it's actually talking about the crises that they're facing in their ministry, trying to lead through this. Yes. So, so what I'm hearing is that you're suggesting discipleship in this moment means that there's just going to be continual crises in the people that you are leading if yes. true discipleship is occurring and people are yes. coming closer to Jesus. How, how do we as leaders navigate that? That's that's hard. Well, I think there's there's two key elements to this. So crisis is opportunity. It's a cliche, but it's true. And maybe next week, I, I want to get into this deeper. So maybe I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put one half of that conversation, which is how do you disciple people in the midst of crises yep. and repeated crises in an information warfare contested space? We'll do that next week. What I do want to talk about is the starting place is what if you're in crises because of all these crises? Mm -hmm. So let's return to a key principle of rebuilders. (laughs) Crisis precedes renewal. Yeah. And at moments like this, what actually happens is the crisis begins to trigger something in you. Mm -hmm. Questions of like, man, how do I do this? Um, I could plan in this environment and have that thing in three months, but now I've got to talk about Ukraine and what's going to come next. You know, like, uh, you know, all of a sudden we've just planted a a uh, campus out there and petrol prices have gone up and, you know, yes. like fuel prices have gone up. Uh, you know, all these different things that are coming up at the moment that you feel like you're overrun with. For any leader, 
When you study the life of leaders that God has used profoundly, you'll see there's these pre-crisis moments where there's an invitation. Mm -hmm. The invitation is to sort of go into running from the crises or sheltering from the crises or then actually going through the crisis with God and in the midst of the crises, actually going deeper with him and reframing that crisis as a chance to depend more on him. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to romanticize this. It's really hard in the midst of these crises. But Terry Walling, who we've had on here before, our friend, has often spoken to us about the trust helix. Mm. That actually what happens in our spiritual life, it's like we sort of go in a circle and there'll be seasons where things are okay and then you hit a crisis. And when you hit that crisis, it's an opportunity to go deeper with God. Mm -hmm. God often takes us on this wilderness process where we're thrown into greater dependency on him. When we do that, we tend to go deeper. And so if you can imagine a circle, those watching at home, you hit that crisis and then you have a chance to go deeper. So it's like a sort of spiral going downwards. And what God is building is deep leaders. What Mm. deep leaders are are people of depth because they've pushed deeper into God And there's something that is intangible when you you see that in people. Mm. Now, what does it mean? We've talked a lot about this and I've had people say to me, okay, Mark, what does it mean when, yeah, I get that idea that, you know, maybe every five years we might have a crisis or a wilderness experience. I'm having them every five weeks in this environment. (laughs) I look at that and we've felt that, you know, like it's like you come out of – you know, a pandemic, then this crisis, in the midst of pandemic, we thought we're coming out and there's this crisis, you know, we've emerged from a pandemic into, into, you know, a war, who knows what's next. When crises are more prevalent, Mm. and if crisis precedes renewal, it means renewal has the potential to be more prevalent. And it Mm. actually means that you have the potential, therefore, to go on an accelerated growth. Mm. I think as... God's generations in the world, that we have generations who, you know, I've said this before, for some time we've been operating on the fumes of what previous generations built up. We've been standing on the shoulders of giants. I think we've gotten to the end of an age where we're relying on institutions that were built two or three generations ago, trust money that was given two or three generations ago. The baby boomers who often are critiqued, one great thing that they have done is they've brought so much volunteerism to the church, yes. so much generosity, and uh, that's that that will pass in the next mm. 10, 15 years as they retire and or pass from this world. And so we now actually need an acceleration to actually get the next thing moving. The Holy Spirit moves next. So in a crisis-rich environment, there is an opportunity for a very quick deepening of leaders Mm. to happen. I look at my life and honestly, if I'm really honest, I feel like it's just been one crisis after another. (laughs) You know, it's just been crazy at times. And often me and my wife sit there and sort of recount it and I'm like, oh, that happened. And then we went from that into this, you know. The one thing that it has done and I would not swap out is I think it's just deepened Mm. my faith in God. it's made me less serious about myself <laughs> because all of a sudden you realize that talent is not going to get you there. Mm. But but what it does make you realize is how God uses those moments. He's pushing a whole generation at this moment through mm. these seemingly rolling crises into a deeper trust of him. Is everyone going to make it? No. Mm. But you see in Isaiah, you see in Jeremiah, you see in Zechariah these books that that, that God speaks of a remnant and that remnant goes through a fire. I think in Zechariah where the remnant comes back to uh, 
Israel and begins to rebuild Jerusalem and the mm-hmm. temple. And there's a great line where I think it's in Zechariah 3 where Joshua the high priest goes before God and Zechariah is seeing this throne room vision and and Zechariah, the, 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 the high priest, is dirty and he feels like the shame of exile and he's given these new clothes. And it says that with him is these other priests who are a symbol of what is to come. Mm. Someone going through crisis is a symbol of what is to come when we step into that crisis with God and say, God, I can't do this in my own strength, but you can. Mm. So the conversations I had, you know, I talked about the conversations, the teaching I was doing in 2019, 2018, 2017, crisis precedes renewal. Man, that's just on fast forward now. It's tough, but what's exciting is the potential of acceleration in leaders. We need to renew and we need to rebuild a whole new generation of leaders. And I think God is doing that as a remnant being built in this time. And if you're still listening and still pushing on, and maybe you've been listening to rebuilds for two, three years or whatever, we've been doing this, and and you're discouraged, reframe this as, yes, it's hard. There's there's a pl- multiple crises, but God is accelerating something in you. You need to hold on to that promise and keep pushing with him. And what that does is when you go through a crisis and you learn how to get through that with God, it is like a heuristic. We talked about heuristic mm. last week, which is something you learn, which is like a solution to a lived problem. It's not some ideology that you put in some textbook that you're spewing at someone that you learn mm. at university. This is real world spiritual knowledge that when someone else hits that problem, you can pass that on. You know, I'm passing on now to people what I've learned through some of the darkest moments of suffering in my life to other leaders. And it's happening to you now. And what God is giving you an opportunity is to pass that on to others. When that happens, what God is doing, he's like spreading that seed out there of spiritual authority amongst people that's going to set up an incredible foundation of the thing that God wants to do next. Wow, what a super encouraging way to end. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Daniel.